0: looking forward to getting into the passage in the book of Ephesians where we are dealing with the armor of God. And you've heard this undoubtedly many times before, but I hope that the Lord will have something new, something fresh for you, something that you can take home with you and feel challenged by the Word of God this morning. But... Obviously, last week took the time off from the Book of Ephesians. We're making our way back this morning to Chapter Six, and you'll remember that when we were in Chapter Four, it was about that time that Paul began telling us that what a believer—he wants us to know what a believer whose daily conduct or the believer whose daily practice matches his position in Christ—and he wants you to know what that looks like. He wants you to understand how you, as privileged believers, should look and how you should behave. And he's told us that people who are filled with or thrust forward by the Holy Spirit will be people who have right relationships. You remember that? He told us that we will have right relationships. We'll have primarily right relationship with God, but also we will have right relationships with one another. You see, as people grow in those right relationships, as they begin to make a difference, they will impact the world for the kingdom of God. And because of that, then we found that they can also expect to face some opposition. We found that they can expect to encounter some trouble as they make their way through the world. And the last time we were together, if you'll recall, we found in verse 12 that even though we may not realize, even though we may not understand it, The truth of the matter is that there is a battle that rages all around us. Do you remember talking about that last time? And we said that it's a battle of cosmic powers. It's a battle of spiritual forces that is taking place all around us. It's a battle between the angelic forces of God and the evil forces of Satan that battle all around us because wherever God's people are busy doing His work, wherever God's people are busy advancing the kingdom of God, we can be sure that the forces of Satan will try to thwart that. They will, they will live in opposition to that work. And so that's what Paul was trying to tell us last time we were together. And he said, don't be so focused on yourselves. Don't be so focused on your daily lives that you miss the battle that rages all around you. You see, the battle is about so much more than you. The battle is about much more than your job. It's about much more than your school or your finance. It's about eternal life, and it's about eternal death. It's about heaven, and it's about hell, and it rages all around us. And because it's raging all around us, you need to be strong. You need to be strong. You need to be able to stand during the time of trouble. You need to be able to stand in the face of struggle and temptation. You have to stand strong. You have to be made strong. You need to be able to resist temptation But do you know that Paul doesn't tell us we have to do any more than just stand? He says resist. That's all you have to do. Be strong. You need to resist. And in verse 11, he tells us how we do that. He tells us what we need to do in order to stand strong, what we need to do in order to resist. So let's take a look at verse 11 quickly, and this is what it says. He says, you put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to do what? That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Put on the whole armor, and that will empower you to stand. So if you want to stand strong in the face of spiritual battle that rages all around you, then what you need to do is you need to put on the armor of God, and you need to stand. You need to resist. And so beginning today and moving forward for the next several weeks, I want to just take one piece at a time and I want us to look at the armor of God and I want to make sure that we have a solid understanding of how this looks. I want us to have a solid understanding of how it impacts us as we attempt to stand strong. But before we do that, I was just wondering, and Beth and I actually spoke of this a little bit yesterday yesterday. How many of you had a dad like mine who had some like, interesting sayings? Dads are great at that. Did everybody have dads who had some, some really good sayings? My dad had one for, I mean, he had these pearls of wisdom for almost every occasion. It was, it was fantastic. And for example, as a young boy, if I was ever trying to build something and I needed a hammer and nails, you know, young guys, they like to build stuff, and so I would find some scrap lumber and I'd take out some hammer and nails, and my dad would always tell me, hey, be careful that you don't hammer the wrong nail. You know what he was talking about? See, you got the hammer in your hand and you're holding a nail and as you go to, to whack the nail, if you miss, you hit your thumbnail, you see? And so he wanted me to be sure that I didn't hit the wrong nail. Hit the nail that you're aiming for. Don't hit the wrong nail. How many of you had a dad who said this one? Measure twice and cut once, right? You all know that one. Yeah, you measure twice, you cut once. I think that's, that's great advice. You plan carefully. You need to think ahead before you start cutting a piece of lumber. You need to make sure that you're cutting it to the right length. And that's just really practical stuff. But he also had some helpful advice when it came to finance. And this is one that he was especially proud of. It goes like this. If your outgo exceeds your income, your upkeep will be your downfall. And he still uses that one on me. Oh, you know, if you're out, go exceed your income. You're up; people be your downfall. I hear that one pretty often. Have you ever heard that one before? Many of you say, no, that's a, that's a new one to me. How about this one? Money does not grow on trees. All right, so our dads, we have some things in common here. But he was also really good at medical diagnosis. And, you know, he would... <laughs> sometimes if he would tell me to do something, I'd respond quickly enough. He'd grab me by the ear and he'd say, do these work? I says, you know... Or, uh, here's, here's another one that I really loved, is if I had the flu and I had the fever, you know, and all the accompanying symptoms, he would look at me and he'd say, you look like you've got the epizootie. And then when it came to timeliness and punctuality, he had something for that too. This is what he said. Do you believe in the hereafter? Have you heard of this one? How many, do you believe in the hereafter? Because, <laughs> because if you don't get up your galluses, you're going to be hereafter, I'm gone. So that was the whole thing. So, yeah, do you believe in the hereafter? Did you guys ever have a dad that told you to get up your galluses? Anybody ever heard that one before? That one's new? Well, you can hang on to that, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But we've mentioned before that when Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians, it was around 62 A.D., and he was in prison, he was in Rome, and you can just imagine, consider in your mind's eye, that Paul is sitting in prison writing this letter and as he's writing this letter warning the Ephesians about the spiritual battle that they're, that's raging all around them, as he warns them to be prepared and to stand strong, as he sits there in this prison not far from him is a Roman guard, and most likely a couple of them. So he sits there writing, and I can imagine him glancing up from time to time as he writes and seeing the soldiers standing there in front of him. And he's probably thinking to himself, the battle against the powers of darkness are very much like the battles that these Roman soldiers are in. It's very much like what these Roman soldiers fight. And as he was looking at the Roman soldier at the time that he was telling the Ephesian church to be strong, I can imagine that he was thinking to himself, put on the full armor of God just like the ones that these soldiers are wearing. And as he looked, did he have each piece of the Roman soldier's armor in view as he was writing this instruction and passing this out to the Ephesian church? As the Holy Spirit guided him and led him along, can you imagine him sitting there looking at the soldier and seeing the soldier's breastplate and then maybe looking down at his shoes or at his boots as he was riding? He saw the soldier's helmet or, or maybe he looked at the shield and he looked at the sword and he thought, you know, the battle that rages all around us is very similar and we need to be just as prepared as these soldiers are. And so he could relate every single piece of armor up to the spiritual battle as he warned the Ephesians to be prepared. In the King James Version of the Bible, you commonly see the phrase, gird up your loins. How many of you have ever heard of girding up your loins? You ever wondered what that meant? Gird up your loins. And one example I'm going to draw your attention to is, is in the book of Exodus. And I would seen this, gosh, many of times, gird up your loins, the command to have your loins all girded up. And so I started looking into it. And one example that I found was in the book of Exodus, and it's in chapter 12. And I found this to be really interesting. And so just to set the context for you a little bit, I want to tell you what was happening in the book of Exodus. You see, it was at this point, just before chapter 12, that the Israelites had been held as slaves in captivity in Egypt for many, many generations. And at one point, the 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 Lord had sent his servant Moses to tell Pharaoh, in whose household Moses grew up, go tell Pharaoh that I want you to let my people go. It's time to let the Israelites out of captivity in Egypt. They're going to come out into into their own land, which they will inherit, and they're going to serve me. So I want you to go tell Pharaoh that it's time to let my people go. And Pharaoh heard the message, and what did he do? He refused, didn't he? So God thought to himself, well, he's going to need a little persuasion. I'm going to have to find a way to get Pharaoh to go ahead and release the Israelites from captivity. And so what did he do? He used a series of plagues. Do you remember the story? The very first one, God sent the prophet Moses to inflict all of these plagues. And the very first one was that he turned all of the water in Egypt into blood. Can you imagine that? All of the water into blood. But Pharaoh refused to let the Israelites go. And then next, there was this infestation of frogs. I mean, frogs were everywhere. They were in the beds. They were in the ovens. They were in the bags of flour. They were in absolutely everything. They were everywhere. People couldn't go anywhere without stepping on frogs. And and suddenly they all died at once. And so now the land was filled with all of these dead frogs. And they would take them and they piled them up and made huge piles of them. And the Bible tells us that it was so bad that the land stank. That's what the Bible says. The land stank from the decay of all of these frogs. Frogs. But still, Pharaoh would not let God's people go. And so next, everyone was covered with lice. The entire nation was covered with lice. And then flies were absolutely everywhere. And then God said, okay, I'm going to kill all of your livestock. And all of the livestock of the Egyptians was killed. And still, Pharaoh refused to let God's people go. God said, okay. I'm going to cover every one of you in painful boils. And so now all of the Egyptians were covered in boils. From head to toe, every one of them was covered. And yet, Pharaoh refused to let God's people go. On and on it went until finally, the tenth plague would be the one that would break Pharaoh's will. And at this point, he would say, okay, this is it, I'm done with these people, let them go. And it was in this plague that the firstborn of every family in Egypt would die. And that night, God knew that this final plague would be the one that would cause the release of the Israelites. This is very important. You see, that night the Lord would send an angel through the land of Egypt, and he would kill all of the firstborn. But God had commanded the Israelites to kill a lamb and to paint the doorposts of their homes with blood. Do you remember the story? And then, as the angel came through the homes of the land of Egypt, when they came to the homes of the Israelites and they saw the doorpost painted in blood, the angel would know to do what? To pass over that home, Right? And so they would pass over that home and the firstborn, and those homes would live, but the firstborn of every other household would die. It was the night of the first Passover. That's where Passover began. And so the Israelites knew that when this angel comes by, when the firstborn dies, it's time for us to leave. We're going to be released at this point. So they had to have their bags packed. The Israelites had to be ready to go. They needed to be prepared to move quickly because there would be no time to waste. Once the angel comes and kills all the firstborn, it's going to be time for you to leave and you need to get up and you need to do it in a hurry. And so God said, when you eat your meal that night, this is how I want you to do it. And so I'm going to read here from the King James Version I want you to follow along in Exodus chapter 12, verse 11. This is what he says. And thus shall ye eat with your loins girded with your shoes on your feet, your staff in your hand, and ye shall eat in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So here it is. Get ready. I want you to eat in a hurry. I want you to have your shoes on your feet. I want your staff in your hand. I want you to be ready to go. God is saying you need to be ready to go because when all the firstborn of Egypt die, we are going to get out of here fast. We're going to move in a hurry. So gird up your loins and be ready to go. And now I want to take you and I want to make sure that you understand what that means when the Lord says, I want your loins to be girded up. So gird up your loins. And to do that, I have a model that I'm going to ask to join me this morning. Elias is wearing this season's hottest fashion comes in small, medium, large. So he is wearing what we would call a tunic or cloak. This is a very typical piece of fabric. And all that it is is a rectangular piece of fabric with a hole cut in the middle for his head. Now, as you can see, it's not very complicated. And Elias's cloak does not have sleeves. Some of them would have sleeves on them. But it was just a piece of cloth cut in a rectangle with a hole cut in the middle. Now, around his waist, you will see a belt there, okay? You see his belt. It's pretty snazzy pretty flashy. I can tell you where to get those if, you, if you're looking for one. But this cloak that he's wearing was an outer garment, and it would be worn over the top of all of the other clothes. You see, it's kind of like a coat. That's how it worked. But the problem with this cloak is it was typically a little bit longer than what we see here. And if you were working or if you were in a hurry and you wanted to go somewhere quickly, the problem is that its design does not allow for you to move quickly. What would happen if he tries to run in this thing? It's going to tangle up around his knees. Can you imagine? He's going to be tied up. It's going to bind him and it's going to catch around his knees. And so if you're working, if you're trying to swing a tool, if you're trying to fight with somebody using a sword and a shield and all of these other things, you're probably going to get tangled up in this thing. So what does Elias need to do? Elias needs to gird up his loins. And so I'm going to show you what that looks like. To gird up your loins, what you would do is you would take the cloth and you would gather it in the back and you would pull it up as high as you can around your backside there, and you would pull it forward, and you would tuck it into your belt like that. And he's going to do that on both sides. And now you'll see that it's high enough that it no longer covers his knees. And so now he can be as flexible as he wants to be, can't he? Elias, if we wanted to, could just go zooming around this room, run as fast as he wants. He could be swinging an axe, doing whatever he wants, and he would not get tangled up. You know why? Because he's girded up his loins. Thank you, Elias. You can go. Thank you very much. Now isn't that great? You see how his loins are all girded up there? That's what it means. Are you with me? That's what it means to gird up your loins. This is very, very important. It's very important that we understand this. You see, the command to gird up your loins is very much like my dad's command to get up your galluses. Do you know what I mean by that? I want you to think about it for a minute. Because I know that you're all just dying to hear the explanation of get up your galluses, aren't you? Okay. Do you know what galluses are? Galluses are suspenders. When a guy who wears suspenders to hold up his pants sits down and he wants to relax, what he likes to do is take his galluses off of his shoulders and he lets them hang. Because he doesn't want his galluses constantly pulling his pants up and causing them to ride up on him while he's trying to sit and relax. And so when it's time for him to go, if that man stands up and he doesn't get up his galluses, before he takes off running, his pants are going to fall down. And what's going to happen to him? So, if he doesn't get up his galluses and he takes off running, his pants are going to fall down to his knees and he's going to trip and fall over his pants he's going to get all tangled up. And so when my dad says to me, Scott, if you don't get up your galluses, you're going to be here after I'm gone. What he means is I am leaving right now. And if you don't move fast, you're going to miss out because I'm on my way. And that's what it means to get up your galluses. And I want you to know it's the same thing to gird up your loins. Do you understand? You have to get it all tucked in. You have to be prepared. You have to be ready to go. It's time for you to get up your galluses. It's time for you to gird up your loins because something big is about to happen. It's time for you to be ready. We are going to move fast now. Do you see? Last time we were together, I told you that historically, whenever we see a command to be strong in Scripture, it's followed by a change or a significant battle. Something big is happening. Paul says, Be strong. Because there is conflict coming. Be strong because there is conflict coming. And if you are going to live in a way that people of your position should live, listen, friends, others are going to take notice. If you live like people who are filled with and thrust forward by the Holy Spirit, you are going to have an impact on your community. You're going to have an impact for the kingdom of God. And if that's the case, you had better be ready. You had better be being made strong because the kingdom of darkness is going to take notice and it is going to try to stop the work that you are doing. That's the message. And you can be sure that if you are having an impact for the cause of the kingdom of God, there is going to be a battle coming, and you better be ready. You better be ready to fight. That's what he's saying. And so what is it that makes us strong? What is it that makes us able to withstand the enemy's schemes? What is it? Well, let's take a look at our passage for today. And I want to go back to verse 13 one more time. It says this, "...therefore take up," what? "...the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day." And having done all to stand firm, now listen, verse 14, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. And if we were to read that in the New American Standard, it would say this, verse 14, stand firm therefore, having done what? Girded up your loins. Now remember, Elias girding up his loins up here stand therefore ready to go with your galluses up with your loins girded you're ready to go so the idea is that we stand firm the idea is that we are prepared the idea is that we are ready to work the idea is that we are ready to go in to battle but if we want to avoid being tangled and tripped up we first have to gird up our loins we first have to get up our galluses we have to be ready we have to prepare ourselves we have to make sure that our cloaks are tucked neatly into our belts Do you see and what is it what is the belt around our waist that we tuck our cloaks into what is it that prepares us what is it that allows us to get to gird up our loins it's the truth isn't it that's the belt it's the greek word aletheia and i want to help you understand that it's really important for us to get this you see in our modern american minds when we think of truth we tend to think of it in terms of substance do you know what i mean by that What I mean is that we often think of truth as the opposite of a lie. Isn't that how we think of it? I think it is. We think of it as the opposite of a lie. So when you ask your kids, have you done your homework? And they tell you, yes, I have. And you check it out and you go into their assignment notebook and you look it all up and you find out that in fact they have done their homework, then they have told what? They've told the truth as opposed to falseness. They've told you the truth. And so I think that's what we think of. We think of it as the content of a message or we think of it as more as content, I guess, is the best way to describe it. But I want you to know that Paul's understanding of truth was a little bit more consistent with the understanding of truth in the first century. And a more accurate understanding of Paul's use of the word aletheia is this. It means to not conceal. It means that something is expressed Or disclosed as it really is. Stay with me. It means it is not falsified. It means that it really is what it appears to be. Do you see? What does that say to you? It says that it is genuine. It's the real deal. Ancient historians would use this word to denote real events as distinct from myths. One is real world. The other is just fiction. It's just a story. It's just made up. Aletheia is genuine. Things that are genuine are alethos. It is aletheia. And so in this verse, that's what Paul is after. So I think what he's going for here is that those people who are truly prepared, those people who are truly equipped to fight the battle, are those people who are truly, genuinely in Christ. Do you see the message now? They are truly in Christ. They have been proven as genuine. And the fact that they are in Christ has been made evident because they have passed the test of chapters 4-6. through Do you see what I mean? They've passed the test. They're genuine believers. We can tell. They practice what they claim to believe. Their practice matches their position. They are not people who go around giving God a bunch of lip service trying to appear as though they are genuine believers when in fact they're not. They are the real deal. They are genuine. You can test them and you'll find out that they are real. You see, the unfortunate truth is that the church today is filled with people who are not genuine. Churches today are filled with people who want to dabble around the edges. You see, they don't really want to dig in They don't really want to become true and committed followers of Jesus Christ. What they want to do is they want to come to church, and they want to enjoy an upbeat worship experience. They want to enjoy the energized atmosphere. But at the end of the day, they walk out the doors and they're unchanged because they don't really want to be challenged by the Word of God. They only want to say that they've been here. Do you see? They hear the Word, but they walk out the doors And they refuse to do what it says. That's the problem. They look just like everyone else. They talk just like everyone else in the church. They know what to say. They know how to conduct themselves in the church service. But deep down on the inside, it's not the real deal. It's not really there. They're not real. And when I think about it, I think that Paul is telling us that if we're going to stand firm... If you're going to face the struggle of the battle, you have to be the real deal. You have to be genuine. As I was thinking about that, I thought about the United States military. We have just a tremendous military. And I think about the programs of training and the strengthening that the people of our military go through every single day to be prepared. And the point is that they do that so that when the battle comes, they know what to do. They do that so when the battle comes they are strong. They do that so that when it's time to engage in battle they are prepared. They know what to do. They're able to fight. Do you know we could easily take somebody from off the streets. We could give him a buzz cut. We could put him in a nice camouflage uniform. We could take him and strap on him all the appropriate gear to make him look like a real soldier. We could put the helmet on him. We could put on the web gear with the the canteen and all those things on him. And we could make him look like a real soldier. And we could take this guy... And he could pass as genuine, he could pass as the real article, even though he had never been through basic training, even though he had never been through any of his advanced individual training, and he would look like a soldier just like everyone else. But what would happen to him when the battle begins to rage? Can I ask you that? What do you think would happen to that guy? That guy would die. And you want to know why? It's because he's not a real soldier. He's not real. He just looks like one. And so when it all starts to go down, he would not know how to use his equipment. He would not know how to guard against the attack. He would not know how to anticipate where the attack is going to come from. He would not know how to respond when it does come. He will have no training to fall back on. He will not know how to use the equipment and he'll be easily overtaken. How many of you want to live in a nation with an army like that? None of you. You see, battles and trials... They have a great way of separating the genuine from the imposter. You see, in 1 Peter 1, Peter said that we rejoice in our trials. It's not because we're a bunch of weirdos and we like to have difficult times. Nobody gets a kick out of that. But do you know why we do that? How many of you know how gold is purified? Gold is purified through this process of high temperature heating. So you take the gold and you heat it up and you heat it up and you heat it up until it becomes molten or or it becomes liquefied. And then what happens is all of the impurities will rise to the top and you just skim them off and the gold becomes more purified. And after a process of doing that multiple times, the gold becomes more and more pure because the impurities begin to separate and they begin to come out and they can just be skimmed right off. Peter says to you that your faith is far more costly... Your faith is far more valuable than gold, doesn't he? He says that when you go through trials, the genuineness of your faith is tested. When you go through difficult times, the genuineness of your faith is tested. And it's at that point that you are proven to be either genuine or to be an imposter. Did you know that? It's interesting to me. I'm reminded of Paul's second letter to Timothy. Timothy. He was at the point in his ministry where he was about to die. He knew he was going to be executed for his ministry of Jesus Christ. He's in the middle of a very, very serious spiritual battle. And of course, we know Paul's faith was genuine, wasn't it? We knew that he would have no problem standing the test, even to his own beheading. But with him was a man named Demas. And Paul tells us that as the heat was turned up, Demas didn't pan out. Do you remember that story? As the heat began to warm up, as the metal began to liquefy, Demas failed the test. As the heat was turned up on him, he decided that he wanted to go home. He decided he'd had enough. He loved the world more than he loved the Lord. And so he took off running in the middle of the battle. And Paul says this is proof that he is not real. This is proof that he is not alethos. He is not the aletheia. He's not the genuine. He's not the real kind. He's just an imposter. It's interesting to think, I had a customer who was on their way to China a couple of weeks ago, and uh, before he left, I met with him and told me he was on his way, and I said, you know, I've always wanted to get one of those knockoff Rolexes from China, you know, those really flashy looking things. He said, I'll grab you one. Of course, he never did. You know, as I think about it, I thought, uh, nobody ever takes a Rolex, a genuine Rolex, and tries to pass it off as a Casio or a Timex. Do they? Have you ever seen anybody do that? Doesn't that seem weird? I mean, why didn't I tell the guy to go over to China and find me a watch that looks like a Timex? See if you can find a watch that looks like a, you know, that looks like a Casio. No, I wanted him to go over and see when he was there, see if he could find something that looked like a Rolex, you know, something really flashy and something really snazzy. Why would you ever want to take the real article and make it look like a fraud? Nobody would ever want to do that because it's genuine. The Rolex is the real deal. It's more valuable than the Timex. It's more valuable than the Casio. Why would you want the fraud when the real authentic article is more valuable and you have that in your hand? Now listen, on the other hand, the marketplace is completely filled with fake watches that try to pass themselves off as the Rolex, aren't they? There are plenty of those out there. I wonder, does it work the same way with your faith? Does it work the same way? Think carefully with me this morning. We can certainly expect that people who are not genuine believers are going to attend church every week. We can believe that. The Bible warns us of that. The Bible says they're going to try to pass themselves off as genuine. They say churchy words. They do churchy things. Many of them are in leadership. and There are even many of them that are in pastoral roles all across the world. And we know that Satan has infiltrated the church with these kind of people. We know that Satan has planted false teachers and phony believers inside the church, and he does that so that he can disrupt the unity of the Holy Spirit. He does that so that he can thwart the work of God and stop the work that God has accomplished or plans to accomplish. So you see the phonies and the frauds drop out all the time. You see them in the news every week, it seems. Another phony drops out. Another fraud is revealed. We know that they're there. And we know that the phonies and the frauds try to pass themselves off as real, don't we? That's what they do. That's Satan's plan. But what always frightens me is when someone who claims to be a genuine believer wants to pass himself off as a fraud. Does that make sense? What do you mean by that? This is a guy that tells you, oh yes, I'm a genuine believer. I really am. I just, uh, you know, it's just that when I'm around non-believers, I want to act like they do so that I fit in because then I have this real position to win them over to Christ. Isn't that... Sound foolish? It's like a Rolex saying, I want to appear as a Timex." And so what they do then is they say, I'm going to act exactly like those people do so that I fit in with them. I want to fit in because I want to be in a better position to win them over. And yet, they expect us to believe that they truly are genuine believers. They're the real article. And I wonder, I'm going to ask you this, and you can do what you want with this. Is it possible that those people really aren't Aletheia? They're really not genuine to begin with. Is that possible? Is it possible that they really are frauds and phonies to begin with? You see, it's the valuable and it's the genuine that people try to imitate. It's the real deal that people try to knock off with the things that have no value. And Paul says, if you're going to be ready for battle, friends... If you're going to be ready to go, if you're going to stand firm and resist in the face of evil, then you need to be ready to go, and the first step is that you need to be what? You need to be the real deal. You need to be genuine. Friends, I want you to hear me say this. All of these pieces of armor that we're going to study, all of these things that we're going to be learning in the coming weeks, are only for the real guy. They're only for the real believer. When the fraud tries to take on the helmet, when the fraud tries to pick up the sword, He's going to be slaughtered. He's going to have no chance. It only works for those people who are genuine. It only works for those who are real. The fraud has no place trying to wield the sword of God. He has no place trying to use the armor of God. Paul says if you're going to be ready for battle, you need to stand firm and you need to resist, and the only way that you can do that is to be the real article to begin with. So if you're not genuine, you're going to fall. If you're not the real article, you will fall. And if you fall, I want you to know that there is reason to question whether you are genuine. Okay? Now I want you to hear me say this. I I want to be careful. I want to make sure that you understand. Don't misunderstand me. Believers are real people. And believers have a sinful nature. And sometimes they fall. And sometimes they make mistakes. And sometimes they make really big, dumb mistakes. Sometimes they do. But there are only two reasons that you would not be able to stand firm in the test. And there are only two reasons you would not be able to resist. And I want you to hear what those are. First is the possibility that you truly are a genuine believer and you've just fallen into sin. But the second reason is because it's possible that you really aren't a believer at all. It should frighten you. It should make you think. But either way, whether you're a genuine believer or whether you're a phony... Either way, it's right for people who don't stand firm. It's right for people who fall in the middle of the test, even those who are genuine believers, to ask themselves, Am I the real deal? Am I truly the real deal? Am I a genuine believer? Did I fail to stand the test because I fell into sin? Or did I fail to stand the test because I'm not real at all? Do you know that's what Paul tells us to do? 2 Corinthians 13, Paul tells us, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith test yourselves, or don't you realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you fail to pass the test. Once again, this is the present act of imperative. So he's saying, you must be continually examining yourselves to see if you are really genuine. This isn't something that you do once and say, you know what, I passed the test, I'm safe, I'm a believer, it's all good. He says, be continually asking yourselves, be continually checking yourselves to make sure that you truly are the real deal. And I want you to know that if you fail the test, if you continually check yourself and you fail the test, it's because Christ is not in you. In that case, you need to repent before it's too late. Friends, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. But we wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness. We wrestle against the spiritual forces of evil. And those forces are real. And your battle against them is real. And the only way that you will have a chance to stand against them, the only way that you will have a hope to resist is if your faith is genuine, if your faith is real, if you have tested yourselves and you have found your faith to be genuine, if you have tested yourselves and you have found yourself to be the real deal, and if that's you, then get up your galluses, gird up your loins, and get ready to go because the fight is coming and you need to be prepared. That's Paul's message to you this morning. So I want you to know that if you found your faith to be real, you need to be ready. And if you have examined yourselves, and you found that your faith is not real, I want you to know that you're going to be overwhelmed. And I want you to know that you're going to be overtaken. I want you to know that you're going to continuously be defeated over and over and over again by the powers of darkness. You just will. And if that's the time, now is the time for you to repent. Now is the time for you to Pray. Now is the time for you to ask God to forgive you and to give you right standing before Him through your faith in Jesus Christ. Now is the right time for you to ask Him to seal that transaction by filling you with the Holy Spirit and by guiding you and thrusting you forward so that you can stand, so that you have a chance to stand against the forces of evil as you're in battle. So that you can stand as a true, genuine, real believer passing the test, Knowing that you truly are who you say you are. Be therefore continually examining yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Father, I thank you so much for your mercy and for your patience. Lord, it's our desire this morning that we would stand firm. It's our desire that we'd be prepared in battle to honor you. Lord, I just pray that if there is anyone here who is not the real deal, if there's anyone here who's not the genuine article, if there's anyone here who just knows how to say the right things and do the right things to pass themselves off as genuine when they are a fraud, I pray that you would convict their hearts. I pray that you would challenge their hearts, and I pray, God, that this would be the day of salvation for them. I pray that you would embolden them to reach out to you and to reach toward you in forgiveness and repentance, God. I pray that you would work that in their lives today in Jesus' name.